Good morning. Uh, this is Tommy Ray, and we're in episode 25 of Water Rights, Laws, Guns, and Money. This is a continuation of our discussion on the San Luis Valley, the Rio Grande drainage. It's a unique district, and we're fortunate today to have Marissa Fricky, Program Manager for Subdistrict 1, join us to answer a few questions. Did I get that right, Marissa? Yep. When was the Rio Grande Water Conservation District formed? Sure. So the uh, General Assembly is is who formed the Water Conservation District in 1967. So this is a state organization, not not a federal. Right. And we always throw in the word quasi just because we're not fully legal and have the, all the authorities that a state entity has. But we do have some ways that we can assess fees and, and the laws and the rules we, we put in place. Um, so we're not fully state. We really like to say we're quasi-state. So the Rio Grande Water Conservancy District has its own building, which I think you told me was financed and paid for by the Farmers Group. So this is more a farmers organization rather than a state agency. It's not a state agency. Absolutely. Yeah, this whole district and why we're here today and we have sub-districts is because the the valley, the community members said, we want to control our own destiny. They they saw what happened in, in other parts of the state where wells get shut off off of mandates. And we didn't want that here. We, you know, farmers, optimists, we say we can handle and, and manage our natural resource. We're the best stewards of the land and water. So they formed this organization and agreed to tax one another to have this building to save our water to fund programs so yes it's very much farmer community driven not state mandated anything okay and as previously stated in episode 24 really in the 1950s there was sort of an explosion here of water wells into the unconfined aquifer and there are two aquifers in the valley, an unconfined, which is recharged annually from precipitation and snowmelt, and the confined, which sits a little deeper. Generally, the unconfined is about 100 feet below the surface. The confined, you're not sure, nor am I, if it starts at 500 feet below or 1,000 feet below. But most of the farmers had tapped into the unconfined aquifer because it was cheaper. And then after over many, many years, they began to find that that aquifer was depleting. Is that correct? Um. Yes, somewhat. So they, the well permits did get um, granted through the state, and they were in both aquifers at the time. So it wasn't like one aquifer was hit up first, and then they started drilling into the second. It was just kind of at that time, at that location, how deep did they need to go to hit water? And so, of course, a lot of the the first wells hit that unconfined first because they got to the water source right away. But the confined well drillers they they happen kind of concurrently so okay. um it it wasn't a, a unconfined drilled and then you move on to the confined it was all happening at the same time so 
okay. bit of everything. Yeah. Okay. I have seen pictures, Marissa, that water wells just flowing to the surface, artesian yeah. wells, yeah. because the pressure on the aquifer, and I assume that was mainly the confined aquifer, right. was so strong that it drove the water to the surface. That's right. I assume that there are no more artesian wells in the valley. Is that correct? Well, there are artesian wells. So even growing up, that's the the water source we had. It's just how they flow is very different than when, let's say, my, my family first got that well permit, and it was a flowing artesian. We had grasses flooded out, and now, um, especially in drought years, You'll, you'll get air pumping through as you turn on the, the spout in your, your sink. So there are artesian wells in the community. Those are the ones coming from the confined aquifer. Um, it's just no one else can drill a, a well, an artesian well. But you definitely don't see the geysers, you know, that you can see on, on old pictures that you come across in, you know, historical pictures we have of the valley. But, yes, there are artesian wells. Those are our confined. They just aren't as flowing as they used to be. Okay. I should point out here that Marissa grew up in the valley and her family is in agriculture and has That's been right. in agriculture a while, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. So she has a lot of common experience with wells. It's easier for us to comprehend the unconfined aquifer. It's uh, typically loose materials below the soil that the water seeps into and is recharged every year. But the confined aquifer, do you know, is that one big, huge aquifer, or is it several smaller confined aquifers? We don't know yet. We don't have the data or the technology to to tell us that. The model, as far as I know, the model shows that it's probably one, but... We don't have that technology yet to to determine that. Okay. And and that's what's so great about this place is that so many scientists and researchers and geologists are coming here and seeing with um, – it's almost like a ultrasound machine trying to pen, percolate down to these layers to see and understand what is going on underneath there. But since it's so deep and it's an untapped kind of unknown world, we just kind of have to go off of assumptions – and right now, what we assume is it's it's one big. It's dark down there. <laughs> right, right. How would you know? Right? How, how do you know? Right, and, right. And I guess the only way to know is to continue drilling wells and installing monitors. Yeah. To, and, and the geologists figure that out. Right, right. It's expensive. Sure. You go with what you've got. Right. But the valley does seem to be short of water. Correct. And, um, Absolutely. So it, the valley, I, I, I'm sure the direct flow rights, the surface rights, and the particularly the unconfined aquifer fall within the priority system, which is administered by the state. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in a dry year, there will be calls placed on the river. Right. The state or its representative in the valley will begin uh, cutting back on water use by the lower priorities. Is that correct? Well, we're, of course, a little bit unique where um, as as we make our compact obligations, we haven't 
had to, at least from what I know, had any calls to to lower any priority system, like priority numbers. We, the subdistrict, make sure whatever the wells are withdrawing from the aquifer and causing injury to the river, we're putting it back so that we aren't injuring any surface water rights. We make sure they are always whole by releasing reservoir water into the river. So we don't have the issue of one call is Wow, so you're basically saying that you're protecting all, yeah, even yep. the junior. Yep, we'll put everything that is calculated from our wells, saying let's just use a easy numbers, a hundred acre feet from these wells is is coming out of the the Rio Grande River. We'll put back a hundred acre feet so that there's no injury to the river, to surface water rights, or the compact. We're making it whole, is what we say. Yes. How do you determine the Rio Grande compact call to the river? Does that vary from year to year, or is it a constant number? Sure. Um, It varies from year to year. I know our division engineer will look at stream flow forecasts. Um, The the compact here has a 60-40 agreement, 60% to the Rio Grande, 40% to the Conejos, and so he administers the compact based on that 60-40 agreement. Um, but it does change kind of annually depending on what kind of precip we have coming down the mountain and how much it's measuring. And then he will administer it accordingly and tell us, the farmers, you know, I'm curtailing it 20% so we can meet the compact or 10%. So he does a really good and complicated job making sure we're always meeting our compact. And so curtail... Does that mean uh, curtail the well water pumping, or are you curtailing any of the surface? Surface. Okay. Yeah. So they yes. will curtail. On a, on a system-wide basis. And they don't do that uh, based on priority, or do you know? So um, I don't really know that one. I would have to ask Cleve. I know every day they do a call sheet to say which water right is in priority, um, so, so they go, they definitely track that, but when we're talking compact, it's the Rio Grande has a curtailment of 10%. And so they go off of the reduction off of the Rio Grande and the Conejos, not this water right X through, you know, 20 is, is curtailed. It's more of a system wide. And so there was sort of something that I would call dirty pool going on with New Mexico a couple of years oh, ago right. I read. I did too, yeah. Did you know that? I, I read about it, yes, and I, I don't know enough to say exactly what, what happened there, but the rumor is there for sure. Okay, so what we're talking about is that there is a reservoir on the Rio Grande uh, southeast of Albuquerque, pretty far yes. down into New Mexico, mm-hmm. called Elephant Butte. And if Elephant Butte ever fills and uh, spills, then it wipes out any obligations, okay. any past obligations to provide water that Colorado might have had. And so <clears throat> once upon a time, Elephant Butte did fill and spilled and wiped out all those past obligations. What Marissa and I are talking about is we uh, have read that New Mexico, rather than chance 
that the Elephant Butte Reservoir would actually fill up and spill over the spillway, they went in and started releasing water just into the desert, just so it wouldn't fill. That's dirty pool. <laughs> yeah, lots of conversation around that. Yes, and, and, and so folks, we should we should know that states play games with each other too. Right. Okay, Marissa, thank you. Let's uh, go back and and go down the list of questions. Um, We would like to talk about the Closed Basin Project a little bit. I I read about that, and uh, can can you explain what the Closed Basin Project is, Marissa? Sure. I'll I'll just do a high high level overview, and and I just I'm not the expert on this, but um, the Closed Basin Project originated because geologically they found that in a particular area the east side of the valley um, there was water that was pooling up and being lost to evaporation it wasn't going down to the unconfined aquifer or the confined let me jump in just a second so i think the geologist would call this perched water that it's uh, water that accumulates uh, on top of maybe a clay layer that might not be that far below the surface and thus could right. evaporate. Right. Is that correct? I would say so. Yeah. Okay. There's so much, so many different geological layers in this, um, this valley. It's incredible. But yes, so generally correct. It's just a unique area of the valley that they found at that time was um, collecting water, but then losing it. So as people started understanding the compact and how we need to meet that obligation and where do you find water, this was kind of an untapped source that uh, individuals said, let's use this water instead of losing it to evaporation. Let's funnel it down and meet the compact needs. And that's going to be less requirement on our farmers, whether in the form of curtailment or finding water to meet the compact. This is this is water that would be lost anyways. So let's take advantage of it and send it to meet our compact. Rather than have it evaporate, right, let's tap right. it, put it in the rear grand to help meet the compact requirements. Yeah. yeah. And it's very controversial, very controversial. So, um, and, and so who owns the water rights in the closed sure, basin? Sure. The Rio Grande Water Conservation District owns that okay. water right. Mm-hmm. And do you have any idea, Marissa, how many acre feet per year comes from the closed basin? Yeah, I. it used to be um, a lot more when, when we had more snowpack and, and the f- creeks and everything could fill it up, but um, I believe it's around 4,000 acre feet. I understand the compact requirement at the state line is a formula, Correct. and so it's not a fixed number. Correct. But do you, can you give me a rough idea of, is it between 5,000 acre feet a year and 20,000 acre feet? Or do you have any idea what's typically released? Sure. I could look into that and get it to you. Yeah, if if you would, I'd I'd like to know. Yep. That would be good to know. Just overall what we owe to the compact. Yeah. Sure. You know, I mean, it varies from year to year, but I'd like to get sort Mm -hmm. of a high, a a low, and maybe an average. You know, the ballpark. That's exactly right. That's what this podcast is all about, to give people a a ballpark impression of what's going on with water in Colorado. Yep. Absolutely. Um, 
And, and you, I think you mentioned the district engineer. Is that a state employee? Yes, okay. that's correct. So the Division of Water Resources, we work with them daily. They help us um, communicate new groundwater rules. Um, just a couple of years ago, uh, it was statewide, a groundwater rule went into effect where not only are the large wells, the deep wells kind of being tracked and monitored, but now any of the smaller wells, um, not domestic, not house use, but ones that might be used for potato cellars or greenhouses or, you know, sort of those those type of um, sources need to have some sort of augmentation plan. Um, so we work with the state constantly, the division engineer telling us what wells need to contract into subdistricts and how someone's going over their annual preparation that sort of thing. So, okay. uh, you brought up the magic word augmentation. Oh, right. That was one of the main reasons I wanted to come and talk to you is because I had seen yeah. you uh, discuss augmentation before, and frankly, augmentation uh, is is a difficult concept for most people to grasp. Can you? Talk about augmentation in the valley. For instance, you just mentioned that some of the smaller users need augmentation water. Right, right. Yes. So in, in a broad sense, augmentation means that you have a well and you're using it for whatever reason it is that is non-exempt. That's a definition determined by the state. Um whether it's for your chickens, your greenhouse, if it's a deep well for your crop of potatoes you're growing, what augmentation water does is we're replacing your injury to the river, your post injury and your future injury. And, and we're making you non-injurious to senior service water rights or the compact or the rivers. We're making you kind of a, a valid permit. There's no injury because of your usage. So augmentation water is to kind of allow you to, yes, you're using your well and you have a well permit, but the augmentation water puts back anything you're taking out of the system. So no habitats, rivers can say your well is causing that injury. And where does that augmentation water come yeah, from? Yeah, exactly. So it, it's getting reduced as as we keep using more water, but there's there's two sources of of ways someone can augment their well. There's a conservancy district that has stored water, purchased water, and they can put water back into the system for wells. And then the subdistrict, we're basically a large augmentation plan where we we meaning the farmers purchased water years ago. When the subdistrict first formed, we had to show the state engineer that all these wells that are drilling into the aquifer have augmentation water to put back into the river system so they don't have injury. So it was very expensive, very hard to come across purchasing all that water. It's transbasin water. Um, they purchased shares from different canal companies, and it's all pooled and stored in our reservoirs. Rio Grande Reservoir, Santa Maria Reservoir, and Continental Reservoir. Okay, so basically you have three surface reservoirs yeah. that you can pull water out of yep. for to augment wells that are are not in compliance or not, or not in, for lack of another word, priority. 
Right, right. Yep. If you want to use your well, you have to show you're putting that water back in what's calculated, the the injury that's calculated, not the full amount that you pumped, just what was modeled showing if you pumped 100 acre feet, you might have pulled out two acre feet from the river. We're going to put that two acre feet back, but on a large scale. And so does the individual farmer have to pay you for that augmentation water? So they do in a roundabout way. They they purchase the water in the beginning of the subdistrict, um, and they assess. Uh, excuse me, Marissa. You uh, sure. you talk about subdistrict. I understand there are six subdistricts. Yep. yep, there's six subdistricts, and the reason I'm saying subdistrict is because since I manage subdistrict one, I'll. I'll speak to what they did. Okay. And they have the largest pool of water. So Okay, so so you manage subdistrict one. Correct. So yeah. I assume then that there are five other managers that manage each of the other five. So there's two others. Okay. So um one, her name's Amber Pacheco. She does two, three, and six, the south subdistricts, and then Chris Ivers does four and five, which okay. is north of sub one. So sub one is the largest. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it takes up. Yeah, a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. it's about three thousand wells, um, and the other subdistricts have wells as well. Um, and everyone has their own unique challenges, but for sure, the unconfined is at the lowest level and has the least amount of time to get to their decreed goals. So yeah, so as far as augmentation water, when subdistrict one first formed, they had to show that they had water in the bank to have these wells be turned on. So they purchased water, very expensive. They're currently storing it, which is um, an annual fee that they charge themselves to pay for that water so that they can turn on their well. So back in geologic times, obviously the uh, the confined aquifers and the unconfined aquifers were farmed. But I, I, I just wanted to bring up that anyone that has not been down here it looks like it's flatter than a pancake. Right. It really does. Right. It and it's a huge is. area. Yeah. It's one of the highest desert valleys in the world. Really? Yes. Yeah. And do you know what the elevation is here? Yeah. It's 7,500 roughly. Really? Of the valley floor? Yes, I believe so. Yes, it is. 7,544 feet. That's our wow. elevation here in the San Luis Valley. I had no yes. idea. I assumed it was... 2,000 feet or something. No. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, 7,500. I haven't had to say that number in a long time, so I'm glad my okay. memory served okay. me right. <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about the closed basin, and apparently the closed basin, there's no surface connection to the Rio Grande? Correct. The closed basin. Right. Yes. Right. Marissa, there are a lot of different terms used in ag water. For instance, uh, return flows, which is the water that immediately returns to the river. Tail waters, which is waters at the very end of the ditch that is not used by a farmer. But there's a unique term down here called salvage water. Do you know what salvage water means? I don't see that mm -hmm. used anywhere other than down here. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this, the word salvage water comes up when we're talking about closed basin and i i'm not familiar enough to to give you enough information on those terms because um i i kind of generally have made my own own assumptions of what salvage water is meaning um it's it's water that hasn't been put to use and would have been lost anyhow so with the closed basin, that's why we use the salvage water, that water that got pulled up that isn't going to use and would be lost anyhow, is what we pump to the compact. 
So that's my loose understanding of what salvage water is. But, um, you know, technically, I don't know if that's the correct definition. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you very much for your time today, Marissa. Yeah, it's a pleasure absolutely. to meet you and to learn more about the San Luis Valley. I always sign off here, as you may have heard, yes. by saying, uh, you know, it's a pleasure and uh, I'm getting tired, so I'm going to go relax by my favorite mountain stream. See you next time.